We're continuing our, our kind of series through the Old Testament this summer, and so we're looking today at some texts from First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and so I'll just for, forewarn you that if you have your Bible, you won't be able to keep up, but you can write down the references and look at them later. Um, but I have this kind of question as I was thinking about this week, and these texts as we look at the kings really of, of Israel, my question is this, have you ever wanted to be like someone else? Like, have you ever seen someone who thought, man, if I could have their life, if I could look like them, if I could act like them, if I could talk like them, if I could be them, man, my life would be so much better. And so you just thought, if only I could do that, whatever that is, right? I was thinking about when I was a kid, because that's usually the ones that are easiest to remember. Um, what, what did I want to do that I wasn't allowed to do, right? So I was thinking about things I missed out on or felt like I missed out on. My parents had this weird rule, right? I, I think it's weird even today. Um, we couldn't, we could go see movies anytime. That was not a big deal in the house I grew up in, but we couldn't go see movies on Sunday. It's fine. I mean, I'm, I, 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 to this day, I'm like, if we could see him on a Saturday, what's different? Anyway, um, but we couldn't go see a movie on Saturday. So I would always have friends be like, hey, do you want to go see a movie after church? And I would look at my friends like, no, I'm not allowed to go. Um, or then I remember, like, you know, we, we would want to stay at friends' houses. Like, that's kind of a fun thing when you're a kid, right? To, to have a sleepover at someone's house. And if it was a Friday night, pretty much it was always okay. But Saturday nights, did that person go to church? If not, was I okay with my parents picking me up for church? Because if not, the answer was no. And I would always be a little bit bummed because some of my friends could go, and I'd, I'd stay up, like, super late, and then I'd be dreading church the next day. I mean, that should be none of you, right? Because I was so tired. But I, it was probably a good rule in hindsight, right? It's one for my kids we've tried to embrace as a good one. Um, and so I was thinking funny things. I was like, was envious of other people. I always wanted um, a pair of Doc Martin boots. I know it's weird, right? So when I was a teenager, they're a really big deal. Although they're coming back, so who knew? And and um, I I asked my parents. They're really expensive. My parents said no. And um, so I began to save. And my mom bought me like some generic knockoff ones. And I was kind of like, oh, it's not the same. And so I finally bought a pair. I have no idea where they are. In a landfill somewhere. I mean, someone might be wearing them, but I doubt it. Right? How many of us have longed for something and it now fills our garage or closet? How often do we want something or think we want something only to find out that we didn't really need or want? Um, those are kind of funny things, but I, w- I was thinking about this. What are other things that maybe aren't as funny? So I, when Katie and I first got married, um, we had some, some kind of friends we had made through coaching for me. And, and um, our, our incomes were probably comparable, I mean, based on our jobs, that kind of thing. Man, they had like this really new, brand new house that they just built. They had new cars. They went on like sweet vacations. And I, was, and I knew they had some student loans, and I, I knew I had student loans. So I was trying to figure out how they pulled this off. Well, um, I, I remember thinking one Sunday morning as they were on a trip somewhere, I was like, huh, I bet if I didn't pay my tithe, right? If I didn't give, give 10% of my income, I bet I could take a cool vacation too, Right? That was my thought process. Now, I didn't do that because I, I'm glad to this day that I didn't make that decision because here's the reality. I think it's been the best investment in the community of faith that I could have made. I don't regret it at all. Um, but in those moments, we were trying to figure out, is there a better way of living or can I have this better life? I bet if I did this, I would get to that. And how many of us have tried to trade something for something different? And so as I was thinking about, as I was thinking about um, the kings of Israel, and think about the reality of that sometimes we get what we want, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. How many of you that's true for, right? Last week we looked at the book of Judges and how all throughout this book, 
There's this line that keeps coming back again and again and again. And it says this, and Israel had no king. Now, we talked a little bit last week about how the reality is the king they were called to have was just God himself. But we see that and we're like, well, you know, like kings are weird for us. I mean, some of us wish we were British because then we'd have the royal family. But other than that, like a few of you I know that's true for because you post about it. Um, you know, but, but like that's the reality. We don't really long for that life. We don't want a king. But what is the question that we came back last week was who are we serving and what are we serving? And so I was thinking about it this way. Um, I had a conversation last November with a guy named Walter Brueggemann. He's, he's probably the best Old Testament scholar still living today, maybe the best Old Testament scholar ever. It's debatable. I mean, there's, I don't know much about 100 years, beyond 100 years ago. And so I was fortunate to a Zoom call with Walter. Um, and I won't tell you what he sent an email to me because I didn't think it was very nice. But, um, but, but he's an incredible scholar. And so one of the things that I was asking him was like, I, I, so I'm doing this series on the Old Testament next summer. I'm trying to figure out how to talk about some certain things. And so I said, it seems to me there's this kind of dilemma that exists. And he says, no, that's a fair dilemma. And here is the dilemma. What we see throughout the entire Old Testament is Israel has a choice to make. They can be a great nation by the standards of the world. Or they can be the people of God. The problem is they don't get to be both. They can be a great nation by all the standards of the world. We're going to talk about that. Or they can be... The great people of God. And when you do one, it doesn't always mean the other happens, but it often means one can't happen. And so we'll kind of see as we walk through this, and so we see this really beginning in 1 Samuel, and so here's this conversation Samuel has with God, and then Samuel has with the people of Israel. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. 
Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, have you caught all that there? But basically, we're going to put your sons, we're going to send them to war. We're going to put your daughters to work. We're going to take a tax from what you have because April 15th comes every single year. And not only is that true, but we find with this, he says, they've rejected God as their king. Why? Why do they want a king? Because then we'll be like everybody else. We'll be like all the other nations. When I look around, I'm envious of what they have because of their kings. And so we need a king just like them. So God gives him a king. And he looks like a king, and he kind of acts like a king. And he was better looking than all the other people in Israel. Don't believe me? Here's literally what it says in the Bible. Kish had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And not only was he handsome, he was a head taller than everyone else. So this dude looks good and he's tall. So the first king of Israel, tall and good looking. Literally in the Bible. I I know, it's weird that's in there. But it goes on to say, but did they get a good king or did he just look like a good king? Because look, sometimes you're deceptive. And here's what it says. He was, he was king, and he was supposed to wait for Samuel to offer sacrifice as they were to go to battle, but he didn't. And so here's what we find. Samuel confronts him. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul could wait for Samuel, and that's not even the worst of it. It goes on to say in chapter 15 this. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gagal. See, Saul couldn't get rid of the Amalekites. He couldn't get rid of the king, and he couldn't get rid of their stuff. He needed to keep it for himself if he wanted it. And then he created a monument to himself. It's called like the worship of self or idolatry. So Saul, who looked like a king, wasn't a very good king. And then we see this kind of thing happen, and Samuel goes to the family of Jesse. And I love this little brief text I want to talk about for just a minute, but here it is. Samuel's with Jesse's family. He says, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, I love, there's a, there's a weird line there. It says the youngest one or the littlest one, uh, depending on your translation. But the word is hockaton. Kind of something you got to spit, like hawk, like a hockaloogie, right? Hockaton, that's the word. Uh, it literally means, if it's translated literally, it's the runt of the litter. I love that picture because... 
Jesse has all these sons. He's like, well, it's got to be like one of these. And they, they kind of pass down the oldest one. He looks like a king. Nope, not him. And he keeps going down the list, keeps going down the list. And you're like, but, but it shouldn't it be the older ones? And he's like, no, I want the youngest one. I want, I want the runt of the litter. I want you to understand here's how God works in the world. You would say the one who looks least like a king. I mean, he might have been handsome or whatever. It doesn't really matter in this story. But, but I want you to know that I can take the runt of the litter and make them great. I do that. That's who I am. And so I also think there's something important that we learn in this. God sees us in ways that we don't often see God sees the potential in you and I that we often don't see in ourselves. Now, if we're not careful, we become like Saul and become arrogant and, and, and do our own thing and think that we can figure it out. But if we can stay humble, we'll begin to recognize there's something that God sees in us that he can use us in ways we never really imagined. And so David is this man after God's own heart, right? Must be a great king. He's going to be the one. The problem for David over time is he begins to believe his own headlines, David should have gone to war where, when all the other kings go to war, but he doesn't. He couldn't sleep. So he gets up in the night, and he looks across the way and sees a beautiful woman bathing. And then he does what you should never do. He makes her come to him. And you think it wasn't required? You think if the king asks something, he doesn't get it? Think about that for just a minute. You think if the king doesn't ask, he doesn't get it anywhere. That's what kings do. We've already learned about kings, right? And so David screws up. He brings Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. And he goes, oh, shoot. I've screwed up. How can I fix this? Wait a minute. I know I can fix this. Her husband's a fighter, so I'll just have him come back. He can sleep with his wife. And then I won't have to worry about it anymore because he'll think he got her pregnant. Everything's solved. Problem is Uriah's a good dude. I mean, this is a good guy. He comes back and he's like, no. I can't sleep with my wife. I can't do that when all my other, other, um, other soldiers that I'm with in this, my brothers in arms, when they will not do that too, they don't get to come home, so I'm not doing that. So he sleeps outside. And he's like, well, shoot. He's a really good guy. This is a problem. He says, well, I'm going to tell the commander of my army, hey, I want you to, where the battle is fiercest, I want you to go up there and fight. I want you to send Uriah in, and then I want you to back off because I need this guy to die. And he does. So um, an important thing we can learn in this story, we can't cover up our wrongs to make them go away. Compounding wrongs doesn't make them disappear. And then there's really one of the coolest stories that happens uh, in regards to David. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and he says, hey, um, let me tell you this story. This guy, he had all this stuff. He was really, really wealthy. And this other guy, he just had just a little bit, like one little, one little sheep. This is kind of his prized sheep. You know, it was really, really, really good. And the guy who had everything took the one little nice sheep from the guy who had nothing. And David got angry. I really angry. He goes, Nathan, you tell me who that guy is, and I will have him put to death. And Nathan goes, well, David, um, it's you. You're the guy who did that. He did it with Uriah and his wife Bathsheba. Well, shoot. Huh. 
Now, one of the great things of David and what separates him from Saul is he did repent before God and ask for forgiveness. But we also learn from this, um, it's easier to see the fault in someone else. Sometimes our righteous anger is easy because we can get angry at other people's sins, right? I can get angry about sins that I know I either am not going to commit or have no temptation to commit or like physically not possible, right? I can get mad about all these other sins, but it's way easier to get mad about other people's stuff than to look at ourselves. And it's a problem, not just for David, but probably for you and I, if we're honest. And so you think, well, David screwed up, and we see later in his life, right, like he just can't confront his own kids, and, and the kingdom's kind of a mess. And you think, well, maybe Solomon, right, the next one to be king, maybe he will get it all right. Solomon's, and he starts really with a great idea, right? He says, okay, God, I, in this kind of dream vision thing he has, he says, well, you know, you can have anything you want. And Solomon says, well, I, I guess wisdom. I would like wisdom. Seems like a great decision. I mean, I think wisdom would be a good idea. For many of us, we could use a little more of it, right? And these, this kind of scene happens, and these two women come, and one had killed their baby, and another said, this is my baby, and start fighting over whose baby this is. And so Solomon goes, well, give me a sword. Let's just cut this thing in half and give me each half. And the one who it wasn't their baby, she's like, sounds good to me. And as only a mother could, the other one goes, she can have her. I can't imagine that. Somebody goes, well, it's not your kid. Definitely yours. People come from all over to hear his wisdom. The problem for Solomon is, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's this picture about what the kings of Israel are supposed to look like. So I'm going to read that to you, and then I'm going to read about Solomon for just a second. So here's what it says in Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say... Let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king as the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now, I didn't go through all the Deuteronomic texts to tell you about what kings were not supposed to do, but a couple other things. Uh, not to worship other gods. Don't take slaves. Don't store up chariots and weapons. And um, take care of the foreigner among you, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Those were other things you were tasked with as king of Israel. So, was Solomon a wise king or not? I don't know, but here's what it says about Solomon. Here is the account of the forced labor. That's called slavery. King Solomon is conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. So don't, don't have slaves? Check. Keep going. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory, overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. 
On both sides of the seat were armrests, with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the force of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with ships in Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. We're going to read some more. But did you catch all the things? So don't go get stuff from Egypt. Where do all his horses and chariots come from? Egypt. Don't store up weapons. What do you have? Lots of weapons. Don't become rich. What did he have? A lot of gold. Huh. So far, he's really killing it on that. Deuteronomy 17, don't do these things. He's so far checking all of those lists. It's like our kids. Goes on to say, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Uh, what was he not supposed to do? Not let his heart be led astray? Too late. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Jumping to verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon's considered one of the greatest, richest men who have ever have lived. And yet, if I were to go through and show you all the ways in Deuteronomy we're called to live as God's unique people, Solomon checks all the wrong 
list of how to do that. And I love this line. There's the line that says every year he had 666 talents of gold. Um, do you think that every year he got the same amount of gold? No. Not at all. See, this number 666 um, is a number of incompletion. It means that no matter how much Solomon got, it was never enough. No matter how much money he made, no matter how much gold he accumulated, he could always look around and see other kingdoms and they had stuff and he's like, I don't have enough. I need more. Give me more. More women, more money, more power, more wisdom, more. I can't have enough. And so Solomon, in all his wisdom, his heart was led astray by all the many women. Like He should have learned one is more than enough, right? Uh, but he didn't. He had a thousand And at the end of Solomon's life, the kingdom was split into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And there was a succession of kings again and again. And there's a whole list, like some are good, some are bad. You can go read First and Second Kings yourself. What we see again and again is every time the people of Israel were focused on wealth and consumption and being like all the other nations, they might have been great in Solomon's lifetime in terms of greatness in the world, but they were not the unique people of God. And then fast forward to really maybe, I would argue, the greatest king in the people of God's history, and that's actually Josiah. And so here's what this text from 2 Kings says about Josiah. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. See, Josiah, when he was a young king, he found the Torah, or the guidance, or the way that people of God were called to live. Law is not really a great translation, but it's the, the, the way in which they were called to be guided by the scriptures, to be, live as God's unique people in the world. And so Josiah saw this, he tore his clothes, and he began to turn the people towards God. And you're like, well, then God must have blessed them, and they must have turned out great, right? No, Josiah was killed, and the nation fell apart. But he turned to God. Yep. But see, here's the reality. To become the unique people of God doesn't promise that you're, as a nation, you're great. That is not what we find in the scriptures. But Josiah turned their hearts back to the right place, so their hearts were captivated by the right things. So what do we do with all this, right? It's a whole lot of kings. Well, there's this kind of interesting scene that happens um, in the book of John that I just want to briefly read. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? <laughs> Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus came to say, hey, listen, 
You have longed for the king of the people of God. Let me remind you again, God is the king and you see him in me. I can walk you through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and we can read about all the kings and what they did. We read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, read more about their stories of them, but here's what we come to know. All of this moves us forward to one who comes from the line of David, who had the right heart. He started in the right place, but there is one king who makes all things right. And his kingdom is not defined geographically by a small location in the Middle East. His kingdom is defined by the entire world. Let me tell you about that king. He came and offered his life. He didn't come like all the other kings. He wasn't like Solomon, give me more gold, give me more, give me more. He came to serve. I mean, he, he washed people's feet. He hung out with sick people and sinners. He came to serve, not to be served. He took the model of the way the world thinks about king or greatness and flipped it on its head. He said, you want to know about my kingdom? Here's what it looks like. Live as my unique people. So I was thinking about this. What, what's it look like for us to live as God's unique people here and now in the places in which we live and work and act and find ourselves connected all the time? And so I was thinking about this line that we've all heard, right? Um, well, the grass is greener on the other side. Have you heard that phrase, right? We've all heard the phrase, the grass is greener on the other side. That was part of Israel's problem. They thought the grass was greener on the other side. They just didn't see the problems on the other side. And so I want to say today, the grass is not greener. On the other side, in your marriage, in our church, in your home, compared to someone else's home, the grass would not be greener if you just had more money. Money does not necessarily solve, I mean, it solves some problems, that's fair, but, but just having more money doesn't fix our heart. The grass isn't greener just because you get a new job, although that may be helpful for some of us at times. But what if, what if the grass is greener on the other side? Is not true, but what if this is true? Uh, the grass is greener where it is watered. What if the grass is just greener where it's watered? Have you noticed that? Like, we live in Michigan, like in West Michigan, where it's like sandy soil everywhere. And you know, like you can tell when someone's yard, they don't water it. They either don't have grass or it's weeds, right? I mean, like that's what happens in West Michigan. I was so amazed when I moved here. I was like, why does everybody water their grass? It's so weird. And then I realized, oh, because I grew up in Indiana with awesome soil that you don't have to water. And that's not the case here. And I said, realize if you want good grass, right? Talk to Brian Punches. No, um, if you want good grass, you've got to water it. That's what you have to do. If you want healthy things, it has to be fed and nurtured and taken care of and thought through. And so I want to say it this way. What might happen if you and I became the committed people of God? What if our sole purpose in life was not to look around at the other people or other places and go, oh, if only I had what they had. What if we were so committed to following after the way and teachings and life of Jesus that we would find that would be enough to give us life and we would become greener and it might begin to permeate into the other areas of our life? What might happen if that's what it looked like? What if, what if we weren't like the other kings? We thought sought greatness the way Saul did or, or even David or especially even Solomon. What if we didn't seek greatness in that way, but what if we sought greatness in the way and the life of Jesus? 
And what if that began to define our lives? What might happen if we lived, I mean, we can take the repentant, David's willingness to repent, we could take that as a part of us, but what might happen in our homes, in our workplaces, with our friends, in our marriages? What might happen if we were so committed to living in the way of Jesus and saying there's a kingdom that exists that doesn't look like all the other kingdoms of the world? There's a way of living that doesn't look like all the other nations of the world. There's a way of living that doesn't look like every other person. There's a way of sacrifice and selflessness that leads to the fullness of life that God has for you and I. I've talked about, um, as we continue to walk through this Old Testament, really from the opening story in Genesis and to the call of Abraham, right? Do you remember this call? The call that I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world? What if, what if, what if that's still true? What if you and I, what if we were so committed to following after Jesus that what if then he would bless us? And I don't mean in the ways of Solomon because it really didn't work, right? What if God wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing to the world. And what if it starts with you and I having the right heart? And what if, what if today God wants our church, his church, to still be a blessing to the world? And what if that'll happen when our hearts are made right and we seek to follow Jesus? So we're not looking well, if I had that, or if I had this, but if only I had more of him. So today, we'll sing another song, give you an opportunity to just reflect and go, God, what, what do I need to see as a fault in my own life that I was blind to? Saul was blinded by women. David was blinded by lust. Saul was blinded by power. And I could go on and on. But what would it look like for me to see honestly and truthfully my own life and reflect and say, God, I need you to make me right. I don't want to keep looking for greener grass on the other side. I want you to make me greener. I want you to make my heart right. I want to live with gentleness and humbleness and sacrifice and selflessness. And I want the characteristics of Jesus to define my life because by definition that is what it means for you and I to be followers of Jesus, to be Christians, to be disciples, to be the unique people of God in the world. What might happen if you and I committed to that? What might that look like? What might we need to reflect or repent or to lay down? What might happen if we begin to say with our life everything that we do Jesus, he's king. I serve him. Will you stand and pray with me this morning as the praise team comes to lead us in the song? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today for the way you invite us to come near. We thank you for the way that you call us to be the unique people, the people that we can only become by the work of your son and by your grace and by your mercy, by your sacrifice. And today, we know we have a choice. We can choose to keep looking on the other side for something that may be out there so we can be like all the other people, or we can choose to be the unique people of God in this world, and we can seek you with all that we are. And so, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would become the kind of people who come to know the fullness of your love so that when even death comes, it never really enters in. That We can pass from life to life, and we can celebrate the goodness of God in the midst of our heartache and suffering, because we believe in one who's conquered even the grave. 
that somehow you might be calling to us to help us to reflect on what it is that has our heart, what has captivated us. And so we ask today that you might help us to continue to be the unique people of God so that we too might be a blessing to the world. And so Father, we ask that you'd open our eyes and our ears to become the people you're calling us to be. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.